Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Hi, Dad. It's awesome. Uh, welcome to Oak City Church. We're really glad you're here. I'm going to just for a second acknowledge this. Last week, who was here last week? Because it was packed, it was loud, and all week I'm like, this is just how summer goes, and COVID summer especially, it is going to be a low audience this week. And I just knew it. And so it's just the way that it goes after 15 years of doing this in summer, and it's great. I am super glad that all of you are here this morning, and you guys are tuning in. And if you're listening later, I'm super glad you got to go on vacation. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. And uh, we've just started doing this where we are reading... um, reading uh, the word of the Lord, and, and we're doing this to acknowledge that God's word, his words mean more than our words, and his words are a gift. And so I'm going to read this, and at the end, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to be like, thank you, God. You're going to say, thanks be to God, but you're going to be like, thanks, God, like that. You're going to be excited, okay? Uh, because we are, because we are, or you wouldn't be here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, you, church, you are the light of the world, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, church, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, good job. You guys can have a seat. Okay. We're in a series called Why We We Need the Church More Than Ever. Um, just in, in regathering after COVID, some things that have been reemphasized to us about how much we need church in the past few weeks of this have been about worship and how the church is the only thing that's going to point you outside of yourself to, towards a transcendent God and say, this is what you need to orient your whole life around because he is God and you're not, and this is what's best for you. And, and the church is the only thing that's going to tell you to do that. We need relationships in the context of the gospel and how the gospel creates context for relationships that sustain relationships and the most meaningful relationships. I was sitting with someone this week from church who um, Chris Hall's mother passed away. And so there, uh, some family dysfunction had come up in the midst of that. And we're talking about these specific relationships and how the gospel would, would solve the problems if we could apply the gospel specifically to those relationships. But that's difficult, but it's, that's what God's given us. And so that's what the church is, is these relationships um, in the context of the gospel. And the last three weeks have been about mission, how God is at work in the world through the church in unique ways. And so a couple weeks ago, we are ambassadors with the message of reconciliation. We're the only ones that God has sent to give that message. Last week was about being salt. And salt in the ancient world was a preservative, and the church serves as a preservative um, for culture. And if, you, if Oak City is your church, and you missed last week and you haven't tuned into that message, find that message and listen to it. That's not, that wasn't a message that happened over two or three weeks, but over 15 years or 20 maybe. So listen to that message. And then this week about light and what uh, Jesus means when he says this to the church. And so I said this last week. I ripped this off from a Tim Keller sermon because it was so good. The church serves the common good of the culture while establishing a counterculture. The church serves as the co- for the common good of the culture while at the same time establishing a counterculture, and um, salt is a little bit more of counterculture, and light is a little bit more of serving the common good of the culture. So this week, I'm going to dig into what does it mean for the church to be light in the world. In the passage, 
points us, you know, in the right direction. Um, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works. They'd see your good works, but they'd glorify your Father who's in heaven. And so that presumes a couple things. One, that there are good works that the church will perform, and they'll be recognized by the people in the midst of the church. And so the obvious question is, what does Jesus mean by good works? And then second, that those works should not make people think about us, should not make people think about the church, but those works should make people wonder about God, and they should see God through us. And in a social media-driven culture that heavily advocates look-at-me and self-promotion, this is counterculture, right? Why do we need the church more than ever? Well, one reason is there's not much in our culture advocating or celebrating humility. And now that the church does a great, great job of this, or in some ways we do a bad job of this, in some ways I think we do do a great job of this, but it's, it's counter to what, um, what we're, we're hearing all the time. So what are the good works that people should see from the church that should make them think that God is great? And then, you know, are we performing any of those works. Years ago, I, um, I was sitting in this passage, and I, I noticed, or really like one of those moments where I think the Holy Spirit pointed out that in a chapter over, there's a contrast presented to this. So this passage says, church, let your light shine before men in such a way that they'll see it. They'll see your works. They'll see your good works, and they'll think about God. But, but the next chapter over, same Sermon on the Mount, um, he says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So in one passage, he says, let your light shine so that they'll see your good works. In the next passage, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. So one thing is supposed to be seen, and the other is not supposed to be seen, but they both really result out of a devotion to Jesus. So that's helpful, like a helpful contrast, and so the, then you got to figure out what does that mean. And the wording uh, is different. In the, in the Greek, the word for let them see your good works is kolos. That's the Greek word. It's otherwise translated good, right, or beautiful. And uh, that kolos kind of sounds like a winsome word, rolls off your tongue, beautiful deeds. Um, the word for righteousness is dikaiosune. It has a little bit of an edge to it, a little bit harder. And um, one person translated that, your secret acts of devotion to the Lord. And right after he says that, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, he outlines, or he, he, um, he points out three Jewish practices that, that they would all know. So he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. So apparently they were giving, but letting everybody know that they were giving. Um, when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they might be seen by others. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting might, by, might be seen uh, by others. So these are acts of devotion meant to be done in private. Really, they're worship. They're acts of worship, but they were doing them in public. And, and he was teasing out their motive. And Jesus can do that because he's Jesus, you know, and saying they're being hypocritical because they're feigning devotion to God when really what they're doing is being devoted to themselves. <laughs> and they're feigning, like, glorifying God, but what they're trying to do is bring glory to yourself. And so that's, those are two just different things, beautiful deeds and secret acts of devotion. I preached this, um, these two, uh, forever ago, before we were a church, when I was at my old church, and... Um, 
And one of the things I suggested is that I felt like sometimes when people, pray, and you should pray before your meal and give thanks to God because he's, all good things come from heaven, but I felt like people were doing that like so that they would be seen by, by others. And some of our, we think our secret acts of devotion are beautiful deeds when they're not, and we need to discern between those things. And then for years, whenever somebody from that church would go out to lunch with me, they'd be like, well, we can't pray before our meal because Jeff's here, and it's not okay. I'm like, thanks, guys. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but we need to like, pay attention to our motives and what we're doing. When it comes to beautiful deeds, uh, the story that, that I think is, is the best story to fit that and that comes to mind is the story of the Good Samaritan um, in the Gospel of Luke. And so they're asking Jesus, um, you know, how, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what is, you know, what's the Bible say? What's the law say? And he says, uh, love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, good answer, do this and you'll live. And then the guy's like, well, what? Where's, what's the bar? What's, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And he tells a story of a guy that's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and that was, that's a steep, so it's not a long drive, but it's like a Pikes Peak drive. It's not a long drive, but it's steep. And so there's switchbacks, and it's a known dangerous road, and the guy gets robbed and left for dead. And then a, a Levite, a you know, Jewish religious people, a Levite and a priest both pass him, and they don't stop and do anything for him. And a Samaritan passes him, and the Samaritan stops and helps him, binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays for his room, says, I'll be back. Whatever he needs, I've got it. They never have communication. Um, he just does it. The irony of that story that we can't catch is that a Jewish person would never say there is a good Samaritan. All Samaritans were bad to a Jewish people. They were arch rivals, enemies would never say that. And so what Jesus is saying is it's the one who, he has no obligation to care for the other, but he does it, and he does it sacrificially. Like, that's what we've been called to do. That, and I think that is a picture of what, let your light shine before men in such a way that they'd see your good works, and they wouldn't think about you, but they'd wonder why you did that, and they'd think about the God that you serve. And that story's transcended the Bible and become a part of cultural lore because it's beautiful. And really, it's a picture of the gospel. Um, Jesus doesn't have an obligation to care for us, but he cares for us because he loves us. We didn't do anything to deserve his love. We didn't do anything to earn his love. We didn't even want his love. But he loves us anyway. And it's a picture of what happens in the, uh, in the Good Samaritan. One person said, being a good neighbor, gospel neighboring is meeting the concrete needs of the people around you whether they believe like you or not, with such costliness and sacrificiality that people will need to hear the gospel just to make sense of your life. Um, and so I would say a beautiful deed is an act done out of love for Jesus and those Jesus loves, often a great sacrifice to yourself for the benefit of another with no expectation of personal gain as a result. Um, now, let me switch a little bit and talk about salt and light and how they work together. And I'll use a, a picture, I think I have a picture of train tracks. Okay, let me ask you a question. Which of those two rails, the one on the left or the one on the right, which, which is the most important rail? Which, which one? Everybody knows this. Which one is the most important one? If you had to like skimp on this smelting of iron or whatever they do you know what i mean like if one was weaker than the other which, where would you put the stronger one no you wouldn't put it on the right or left you're you're in trouble 
you're in trouble if one of those rails is weaker than the other, right? <laughs> like, there's no answer to that one. Both those rails need to be strong. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. Which one is more important? Let me give you another, let me give you another passage. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and Father, the God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think unstained from the world is a little more salt. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Um, caring for people who can do nothing in return and have a hard time caring for themselves is more light. Which one is more important? Neither, right? Um, which one does the church fo focus more on? Unstained? How many people think unstained? How many people think orphans and widows? Okay, we had a lot of unstained, and I don't think we had an orphans and widows. And I didn't know how we were going to answer that, but that's kind of how I thought we would answer that. Uh, acts of devotion, beautiful deeds. Two rails, we need both of them. The Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So the Great Commission is Jesus saying, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That is, in a way, a beautiful deed because it's, there is some sacri sacrificial whatever to it. Um, but it's not something that the world's going to look at and say, oh, look at God. I mean, that's, that's a command that he's giving us and a mission that he's given us. And it's a little bit more of an act of devotion. The great commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, those are how those, things, those commands are known in the history of the church. The great commission and the great commandment are two rails, and the church needs both of those. Um, the, the church tends to, however, focus on one, major on one, and minor on the other. Um, a church will tend to focus more on the personal righteousness aspect of things, you know, read your Bible, come to service, serve the ministry of the church, make disciples, or love your neighbor, the love your neighbor part of things, care for those who are in need. But we have trouble balancing those things and doing them equally. You go back through the history of the church over the last, say, 150 years, and in the late 1800s, uh, the, the bigger mainline churches tended to move towards the caring for the needs of the, of the city, wherever they were, with, to the, but to the exception of the personal righteousness part of it. And a lot of that had to do with um, a diminished view of the authority of Scripture and um, a, a diminished understanding, I would say, of, of Christ's sacrifice on the cross or our need for it. And so they moved away from it. I think the fundamentalists were a reaction to that, where they moved more towards the personal righteousness, sin and salvation part of it, without talking about caring for the needs of the, the people around you, without talking about beautiful deeds. And it caused like a chasm in the church for years and years that I think has been coming back together, but I'm not so sure. Like we have a hard time getting these things um, together, but that's how they work. They work together. When we love our neighbor without an agenda, it helps in the process of making disciples and getting people to worship because the beautiful deeds give people a transcendent sense of the power of the God that we're worshiping because only a transcendent God <laughs> with that type of power could make us do something as counterintuitive as the beautiful deeds that are pictures of the gospel, all right? And the more devoted we are to God, the more we worship, the more the gospel forms us, the more... Uh, we love the people around us the way that Christ loved us. And one of the simplest 
expressions of the gospel in Romans is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we didn't do anything to deserve his sacrifice for us, when we didn't even want his sacrifice for us, when we were running from him, he sacrificed for us. Love your neighbor like that, and people are going to want to know what your God is like. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. And we don't need to know how they work together. We just need to trust him that he's called us to both of them and that they work together. Now, I think we can see in hindsight how they work together. Um, I put in the weekly email, I, I put a, a little thing at the beginning about something that's been interesting to me. And this was interesting to me, and then it found its way into my message. But it was a, a podcast called Undeceptions more of an apologetics-type podcast, and he was interviewing a historian named Tom Holland who I'd never heard of before, but he is an expert in Greek and Roman history. And um, he grew up with an atheist father and an Anglican mother, but he ended up becoming an atheist himself, but had a positive view of the church because his mother was such a good woman, which is salt and light working together in this guy's life. But, and as he studied Greek and Roman history, he realized that he had the default assumption that Western culture is like the legacy of Greek and Roman culture, and so he should be able to tie the values of our culture back to those cultures. And he, there were some of them he couldn't. The fundamental dignity of all human beings does not exist in Roman and Greek philosophy. Um, the, the need of the wealthy to care for the poor, uh, for the healthy to care for the sick, he thought would be a legacy of Roman and Greek culture, but it wasn't in there. And he said it had to come from someplace else, and as he studied it, he realized it came from the church. <laughs> kind of to his dismay. So this is part of that interview, and I'd encourage you to listen to it. The, guy, the podcaster asked him, what's new? What was new in Christianity? He said, Christianity offered the idea that as Christ said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That perhaps because Christ suffered the death of a slave, therefore in some strange way, the slave is closer to God than the master. And that was a new idea. And the obligation then that is placed on those who are rich to care for the poor became a universal uh, obligation. Across the Roman Empire, over the three centuries that followed the death of Christ, you start to get this, this is how he described it, this strange kind of cuckoo in the nest, and that cuckoo basic, is basically a kind of proto-welfare state. You have bishops of the church who become highly significant figures within cities because they end up spending vast amounts of money. They're funding widows, they're funding orphans, they're helping out those who are in prison, they're helping those who fall si sick, and this is seen as kind of a universal responsibility. And this is something very, very radical and new, and perhaps the measure of it is the degree to which in pre-Christian Roman cities, the urban fabric consisted of amphitheaters and arches, the kinds of things that proclaim the glory of the person who is sponsoring them. But after the first few centuries of the church, you start to get structures that simply have no place in the world of classical antiquity like hospitals and orphanages. The development of the hospital is absolutely an expression of the Christianization of the empire. Hospitals in the pre-Christian world existed in military camps and on agricultural estates where slaves worked, and they existed basically to make sure that the soldiers and slaves didn't get sick so that those who were in command of them got their money's worth from them. The idea that you would open up hospitals to care for those who were absolutely at the bottom of society and can't contribute is bizarre and novel. And it, he said in this year, COVID, of all years, something that we need to recognize is not a kind of natural state. The idea that we should care for the sick and that those who are less likely to die should make sacrifices for those who are more likely to die is not in any way human nature. It's culturally contingent, and it's spread in the West specifically because of that Christian inheritance as it emerges in the 4th and 5th century in the fabric of the Roman Empire. 
I love quoting folks that aren't Christians <laughs> to the church because we know we have a bias to see the impact that the church had in the first few centuries whenever we look at history. I know I have a bias towards it. This guy has a bias against seeing it, and, see, and, and he sees it anyway. And, but the end, by the end of the podcast, the guy asks him about his own faith, and he, this has really thrown a wrench in things for him because he has no explanation for it, and it's, it's, it's like leading him to faith, let's say. It's the two rails, and they're working together. Um, I, found, I found these quotes... Um, this is from the Emperor Julian. He's, he's the emperor in the middle of the 4th century A.D. Uh, the emperor launched a campaign to institute pagan charities in an effort to mash the Christian charities. He complained in a letter to the high priest of Galatia, who's a pagan priest, that the pagans needed to equal the virtues of the Christians for recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, this is in quotes, by their moral character, even if pretended. That's how the emperor had to view the Christians. <laughs> like, they can't possibly be this good. He said, the bene their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of, of the dead. I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by our priests, the impious Galileans, this is the emperor of Rome, the, the leader of the world, calling the Christians the impious Galileans. 300 years later, that's still how they identify Christ, as a Galilean, and these people couldn't be pious observed this and they devoted themselves to benevolence the impious galileans support not only their own poor but ours as well everyone can see that our people lack aid from us he recognized that his charities and that of organized paganism paled in comparison with christian efforts that had created a miniature welfare state in an empire which for the most part lacked social services this is what turned the world upside down and a big part of what spurred the crazy growth of the church. Not, no religion's ever grown like the church did in the first few centuries um, of its existence. This still applies today. Um, this week, I, it, just the last few weeks, I've been as I've been thinking through this, the different things have gravitated towards my mind. I talked last week about salt and how with those cultural hot-button issues, um, our opinions formed by the gospel are going to create some tension with the culture because they're going to be different from the opinions formed by those in the culture. But, but the second rail, the beautiful deeds, really creates some more space to articulate those opinions and the reasoning behind those opinions because the rails work together. Let me give you another example. I grew up in Milwaukee, uh, the home of the NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, this is a big thing for you guys this week. Everybody watch this on Tuesday night, whatever. All right, one person watched it. It's good. Um, it's been 50 years. I was like two months old when the Bucks won their last NBA championship. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was still Lou Alcindor, and he played basketball in Milwaukee. You probably either don't know who he was or don't, surely don't know that he played basketball in Milwaukee, but he did, and that's how long it's been. We were pretty excited about this. The parade for the team on Thursday had 500,000 people in it. There are 600,000 people in Milwaukee proper and a million and a half in the statistical, the metro area. You know what I mean? Like, we just don't get many championships like this. Now, the big story for the team is a Greek guy named Giannis Adetokounmpo, um, and he is a story, man. He's fantastic. The thing that put him over the top this year, the difference between last year, was a player named Drew, J-R-U-E, Holiday. And they traded for him in the offseason. He's a point guard. He just was the glue. He put all the pieces together in a better way. And um, he is a vocal, strong man of faith. He is a strong Christian guy. He, is, he and his wife, their interracial marriage, his wife was on the UM, U.S. women's national soccer team. 
a couple years ago, she was pregnant, found out she had a benign brain tumor. They had to go through all of that. And they're just, they, they live this out. And so a couple months ago, they gave a million dollars to black businesses in Milwaukee to an organization that supports um, African-American-owned businesses. And they were celebrated by the city. Uh, I think if the city knew, like, some of their opinions on cultural issues formed by their doctrine, they probably wouldn't be celebrated as much, but they're not asking those questions. <laughs> they're not quizzing them on it because, not just because they are the recipients of their goodness, but because people recognize sacrificial goodness, and it makes them pause. Like, it gives you space. And I think we see that all the time. Another, I didn't know anything about this guy until this last series, but the coach of the other team, the Phoenix Suns, is a guy named Monty Williams. Monty Williams was an NBA player. He's been a coach um, for a while. And as I, as I watched the series and listened to him be interviewed and they had clips of him coaching his players, I thought, man, I'd like my kids to be coached by this guy or I'd like to be coached by this guy. Like, he just seemed like a great guy. And the, at the press conference at the end, and I think he wears this hat all the time, he's wearing just a real simple black hat in all small letters, born again. And I knew he was a man of faith, but then I looked stuff up, and man, this guy is, uh, he's something. He, his wife, they have five children, he's my age, five years ago his wife passed away in a car accident. Um, she got hit by a woman, she had two, three or, two or three of her kids in the car, and a woman who crossed the center line high on meth, and they got in a car wreck, and this guy lost his wife. Um, there was a great story in SI about this, and talked about his wife's, faith's impact on him when they were at, uh, they went to school at Notre Dame, and that's where they met. They said her, her faith was different. Her name was Ingrid. Never convenient, never for show. Every week when they were in college, she disappeared for hours at a time in the afternoon. Finally, Monty asked why, where. So she brought him along, and he watched confused as Ingrid spent two hours at a nursing home with a woman named Helen, one he was pretty sure was suffering from Alzheimer's. Ingrid brushed Helen's ha hair, talked with her, bathed her. As an athlete, Monty had been taught to perform charitable acts for the camera, but here was Ingrid, a young black woman caring for an old white one, not for the cameras or a pat on the back. When he asked Ingrid why she did it, she looked at him funny. Wasn't this what Christ taught us to do? Monty was floored. It was so real and so raw, he says. And then it goes on to chronicle the things that they did as a couple over the years and just like working with inmates, working for, at shelters for abused kids, donating things to the, to the poor in the off-season, going to South Africa, working with basketball without borders. It's two-rail two rail faith. And you listen to this guy, coaches players, and just the way he carries himself, you want him to coach you. After um, they lost the game, he came to the Bucks locker room, the finals, the final game. They, he came to the Bucks locker room and asked to address the team, the Bucks in which I've watched a lot of sports in my life, and I know that's happened, but I've never, I can never remember it. And just such a classy guy. Kevin Durant, who's a huge NBA star, who the Bucks beat on their way to national, the NBA championship, uh, he, he was coached by Monty Williams a couple years ago in, um, I think, in Golden State. And in this interview, he said, he'll hate that I say this, but he is the best man that I know. <laughs> and that's no slight to my dad, my godfather, my uncle, or any other coaches that I've had. Uh, that's how he describes about him. I watched a clip of the funeral, and this guy stood up a few days after his wife died and spoke to a huge crowd, you know, and composed himself. And in it, he said, hey, I know you guys are all praying for me, and you're here to support us, and that's right and needed. 
but we need to remember there's another family involved with this, and they didn't mean for this to happen, and like offered forgiveness to this woman a few days after um, his wife was taken away from him, and people were blown away by it. Uh, there's a coach, if you're a basketball guy, you know this, this for a woman, there's Spurs, the San Antonio Spurs have a coach named Greg Popovich, he's the Olympic coach right now, he's a notoriously hard guy, <laughs> and I'm, I'm have no indication that he's a man of faith, but he knows Monty Williams well from coaching him and then having him as an assistant coach. He was at the funeral, and he told a few players flying back to San Antonio, it would be years before we understand the totality of that moment. He said later, I was in awe. I could not believe that a human being could muster the control and command of his feelings and at the same time be as loving and magnanimous. That is a two-rails Christian. Right? That is one who has acts of devotion, and the hat's a little bit much, you know what I mean? That is a little bit of a secret act of devotion done in front of everybody. But when you live the way this guy lives, then I think you're afforded the opportunity to do that. And again, he's going to have cultural opinions that are going to be unpopular, but people are going to give him a lot of space because of how Jesus shines in his life. In so many different ways, he is like Christ. That's what God has called us to. We're called to make disciples, we're called to be personally devoted to Jesus, and we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love our neighbors the way Christ loved us, to see things in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our families that break God's heart, and to do something about them, whether we get something from that back in return or not. That's who we're called to be as a church, these two weeks together, salt and light, and that's what it looks like to be an ambassador of the message of reconciliation. As a church, We've always tried to do this. Before we were a church, we were involved in something in Uganda called Invisible Children, which was a, a group that um, was, was wor- there were kids being abducted into a, children being abducted into the army of this guy named Joseph Coney who was nuts. And so we had a group that actually went over there to, um, oh, I forget what that city is in the northern part of Uganda, that were engaged in that. Uh, We've been engaged in, the guy here started a group called Dynamic Water that was drilling wells, and they ended up drilling well in the high desert of Kenya for people that had no water. In the name of Jesus, um, we've been uh, partnered with Global Hope India. We were engaged early in some things regarding um, human trafficking. Uh, We've been engaged in helping with refugees. It's part of the reason that Nate employs a lot of refugees now is how God was at work through the church. For years, we did something called the Wake Interfaith Hospitality Network that houses people on the edge of homelessness in churches and tries to help them get back on their feet. Um, and we were, we were a part of that. And all these things are an effort to be this type of church that is doing both of these things and, and sees them of equal importance. We have a group at the church that you uh, purposefully don't really know much about called Oak City Serves. And it's a couple three people that um, the mission of that group is to mobilize Oak City Church to meet the spiritual, physical, and relational needs of the people in our community. So try and ride on both of those rails. And they try and pick organizations in our community that are, that are doing great things that we can be a part of that, that fit Oak City Church really well, that are effective and, and really meeting needs, and that are gospel-focused, that are doing these things in a res- out of response for what Jesus has done us. And so those organizations uh, right now, one of them is Pharaoh's Daughter. How many of you know what Pharaoh's Daughter is? That's good. Almost everybody. Good. That's good, right, Susan? <laughs> Susan's in the back. Susan, God called her to do this a few years ago. Um, there are women that are in prison that are pregnant that you can't have babies in prison. Do you know that? They don't have babies in there. And so they, they have their baby, and then their baby goes in the foster care system. 
And through a family member, Susan's heart was broken over this. And so now she takes those babies, cares for these women's babies until they get out of prison, and then cares for the mother and their baby, and really becomes a mother to the mothers, uh, and many of whom have never really had a mother. And so Susan is teaching them to love like a mother by loving them like a mother. And that, you're teaching love the hard way, right? Um, and maybe more often for you than for them. Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult work. But man, is that a beautiful deed? Is that what Jesus was talking about when he said, let your light shine before others in such a way that they'd see your, your beautiful deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven and say, why would anybody do that? <laughs> why would you do that? Only because God called you to. You know, because of what he's done for you. And so that's like, and we partnered with her and we support her and we sent out Amazon lists and you guys respond really well. We need some more things. We need some mentors. So it's not just Susan and her sister and her little crew mentoring these women, but they get a picture of what can be in life. Um, she needs some board members. She needs people to help steer and promote uh, Pharaoh's daughter. So she has more needs. Um, ben Olson. Tiffany's on staff as our communications director, administrative director, and Ben is her husband, and he's run the Smithfield Rescue Mission for years. That's what we think it is, like the Raleigh Rescue Mission, but in Smithfield. And so they are caring for the needs of people that are, that are going to be on the streets otherwise. And they, they do that, and it's, they're holistically caring for them and trying to help them find jobs and trying to help them, you know, get together emotionally, but trying to help them spiritually as well. And it's not not a bait and switch type of thing they're just helping people and so we've done a few things with them over the years it's a little bit more challenging because it's in smithfield uh this fall we are scheduled to help them redo the women's room no the children's room in the women's house as a part of the smithfield rescue mission we're going to schedule that for sometime in september when we do that we need a bunch of people out there <laughs> um to help out and to get that done we partner with a group called the dream center uh, Jeremy has been up here, it's been a few years now that he came up and preached, and this is an organization that our students started working with, and Jeremy actually was a worship pastor at a big church in town, so he was leading people in their devotion to God, and God called him to do something different, pretty radically and unexpectedly, um, to lead people in beautiful deeds, and so their focus is on food insecurity and the number of people that just don't have enough food, and so they collect tons of food, like literally tons of food, from local organizations, and they distribute that to different, you know, communities that uh, they have identified uh, within Raleigh, and they do it consistently, and they do it in a way that helps them develop relationships with people, and they do it in the name of Jesus, and they're always offering to pray with people, and their their folks, their volunteers are all trained to share the gospel with people so that they can get the second rail, and so that they can tell people about the God that has led them to serve uh, in this way. We, um, you know, we have been disengaged with this during COVID, but it's time to re-engage with this. Uh, the community that we have been a part of most recently is Washington Terrace. It's right up Raleigh Boulevard, probably um, two miles from here. And they have a back-to-school, um, you know, a book bag type giveaway thing that is August 14th. That's a Saturday morning. Uh, Oak City Serves, that team signed us up for 10 slots for you guys to fill. <laughs> and we need to fill those slots. And it, it, that is what it means for us to be a church that rides on both those rails, is to engage with organizations like this and do this. So when that comes out, and I think there's a number you can text right now, if you can sign up for that 10 to 12 on August 14th, and you want to be a part of that and take one of those spots, because we need those 10 spots filled out to be a part of what God is doing through the, through the Dream Center. 
and he's blessing that ministry. Sunika is another group that we partner with, and um, man, it's been a blessing to watch Sunika over the years, like try and figure out how we balance these things, and they do a fantastic job of it. They go into communities in Nicaragua, and they do a community needs assessment to figure out what the community needs from the community's perspective and not just come in and tell them what they need. They work with them so that the community really meets their own needs, but with a lot of help from Sunika, but they know if they're not invested and engaged, it's not going to last, but they do it in the name of Jesus, knowing that if they do it, they're likely going to win the trust of the community, and so their message um, of the gospel is going to have some weight to it and that people will trust them as they make disciples of their kids because their focus is really on the youth of a community and um, we've had a chance over you know how many ever years to to be a big part of that and you guys have engaged it and that's why we do those things because christ has called us um, to all of this and we like we need you engaged in that we need you engaged in it and man, it will, when Jesus says you have to lose your life to save your life, this is the type of stuff that he's talking about. You don't want to do it. You don't feel like doing it, but then you do it and you realize I'm made to do it. And it changes you. Um, I've always, I mean, I've always been engaged with stuff like this. When I moved down here 25 years ago, I started volunteering at my old church in, with the youth ministry and then at the Raleigh Rescue Mission, thinking that God wanted me to be doing something different for a living, and I didn't know what it was. And if I had had to guess, I would have guessed, I would have gone on staff of the rescue mission somewhere. Um, it just matters. I've tried to engage my kids in this, and they have. I mean, w when we were working at Millbank, they knew those kids because they were there enough that they knew those, the kids that were going to come out <laughs> by name and were able to engage them. My older boys have been to Nicaragua multiple times. Uh, my younger kids haven't been um, just for a handful of reasons, whether it be COVID or revolutions or any type of stuff like that, you know. And that's, I can see it change them. When you start to understand how God wants to use you and that he can use you to bless another and to change their life, that is like spiritual crack, y'all. You know, like that's what we're made for. And so that is how we're trying to lead um, our church.